Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded by me, Liam Miller, he, him, he's a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Love, Rinse, Repeat is recorded on the unceded sovereign lands of the Gayomago people and is supported by the vital leadership team of the Uniting Church in Australia Synod of New South Wales and ACT. My guest today is Rhiannon Graybrill. Rhiannon, welcome along. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Uh, so for those who don't know, uh, Rhiannon is the uh, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Rhodes College. Uh, she's a scholar of the Hebrew Bible whose work brings together biblical texts, contemporary critical and cultural theory. Her works include uh, Are We Not Men? Unstable Masculinity in the Hebrew Prophets and the book we are discussing today, Texts After Terror, Rape, Sexual Violence and the Hebrew Bible, uh, which was published this year with Oxford University Press. So, Let's, let's, let's get into talking about texts after terror. Uh, you write, you know, the, the book opens with, with this line of the, you know, texts after terror is a project in imagining new ways of reading and understanding biblical rape stories. So I guess, you know, we can start very broad of how this project came about, but I guess the question maybe inherent in that first sentence is uh, why was there the need for new ways, I guess, which also, I guess, points to a at least one part of the after in that in that title. So, so maybe just wade us into the book a bit, how this project got going, uh, and, and what some of the things are you were trying to wrestle through as you as you started to research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this project actually started as a book about how to do feminist biblical criticism, which was too big mm-hmm. of a project for this book. But I realized the stories that I was most interested in thinking about all were stories about rape and sexual violence. And so most people who are familiar with the Bible realize that there are stories in the Bible that have to do with sexual violence. Some stories that almost everyone agrees are rape stories, like the story of the rape of Tamar. Some stories that used to be interpreted as love stories and now are being interpreted more as rape stories, like maybe the story of David and Bathsheba. And then all the kind of icky stories that the lectionary usually kind of tries to skirt around, but maybe you like found them in church when you were flipping through and not paying attention or, you know, through other cultural reasons. So I wanted to focus on thinking about how to read stories about sexual violence. And I was interested, I've been interested in feminist biblical criticism my whole career, but it seems to me like these rape stories in particular, there's a surprisingly narrow range of responses that kind of get repeated over and over again. And often in biblical interpretation more broadly, feminist biblical criticism in particular is asked to do this work of taking care of the nasty, icky stuff about women. And so you're reading Genesis, you get to a story like the story of Dina. You're like, this is an unfortunate rape story. Let's bring in the feminist. She can tell us how sad it is. We can all feel sad and then we can go on. Mm. So I felt like this really like wasn't living up to the potential of what criticism could do. And then also I was teaching at a liberal arts college. So teaching 18 to 22 year olds Mm. and a lot of them had experienced sexual violence and were experiencing it on campus. We know this is really a problem everywhere. And sort of the ways that we talk about that scholarly scholarship on the Bible would talk about sexual violence just really wasn't resonating with their experiences at all. And in some Mm. ways it felt like teaching that scholarship was if anything, almost like harmful in that sometimes, you know, for example, Can you imagine a worse thing happening to a woman than being raped is something that you'll hear a lot in biblical studies Mm -hmm. as a way to kind of generate empathy for biblical characters. But then to say that to a classroom where you know that there are survivors in the classroom is also like a very damaging kind of pedagogical Mm -hmm. gesture. So I was interested in sort of thinking about other ways of reading. The Mm -hmm. after in my title, which you also brought up. So texts 
of terror is Phyllis Tribble's amazing 1984. It's a classic work about how to read difficult texts. It's also a book that is 30 some years old and it's not, it's still kind of setting the paradigm, but like things should move forward. And so Mm. after is not instead of, it's not the old thing was bad, but sort of like building on these earlier feminist Mm. criticism, what can we do? And then I guess there's this sense of after you, you write early on that after is also about, you know, not letting the the suffering and darkness consume the space around these stories, around these rape stories. So so uh, I guess, you know, like opening up a space for what happens like after, which, you know, as you say, like in, in most of the biblical stories, except for one, which maybe we'll get to later, is it, it kind of just ends with the event and doesn't really have a kind of reflecting back or a, a, a you know, a moving on and moving forward, I should say. So, um, yeah, I, I'm interested a bit about that kind of trying to push against maybe just the, the allowing it to be all consumed by a particular mood or mode and, and thinking about an after in the sense of the actual stories and event itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we think of these stories as sort of ending where the narrative ends, which is often, right, we know the narrative is interested in, predominantly like it's a patriarchal story it's interested in certain kinds of male power but Mm. that's not the same just because the story ends there doesn't necessarily mean that that we have to end there as critics and I actually think the assumption that she was raped it's as good as she's as good as dead which is something that you kind of get both from very misogynistic interpreters but also sometimes in really feminist spaces is kind of like this is the end for Dina this is the end of Hagar Mm. I think that's actually a really harmful and also critically limited perspective. And so one of the things I'm interested in this project is so after we feel a certain way about the story, but also the afterlives of the stories, but also just in the text, what happens after the kind of rape story? Mm. Yeah, thank you. So uh, you, you kind of have this these categories that, or, or yeah, a framework for thinking about sexual violence that, that you know you're going to develop in chapter one, but comes through uh, throughout, which is this fuzzy, messy, and icky. Um, I'm curious to talk a bit about that, about kind of how you kind of, you know, how you feel that kind of categorizing or, or framework can help. Um, I guess maybe you know in that kind of move for after in in both senses, um, and how yeah, just just how you kind of I guess started to develop this. Was it kind of a thing that you just like had an idea of and then thought, let me test it as I read or did it kind of come through more and more as you went? Um, and, and how do they kind of assist uh, your project uh, here? So, yeah, in the first chapter, I talk about fuzzy, messy and icky. And I intentionally wanted language that wasn't the language we already use. I intentionally wanted something. I'm interested in the way that we talk to each other about sexual violence and how that's different from official scripts. And so like in American English, the word creepy can do a lot of work. Like, oh, mm. he was creepy. Or like, oh, I had a, a weird thing happen. Or like, it was, a, it was a sketchy night. So there are these ways that we can signal something happened that wasn't without applying a kind of official language, which mm. at least in, I don't know if this is true in other national contexts. In U.S. universities, there's something called Title IX, which is... Um, it's supposed to ensure equality um, in education without um, for all students, but it's often, it's used to, in, let me back up. Title IX is supposed to be, it was originally about women having access to sports. Mm-hmm. It's now used to try to prevent sexual violence on campus, but there's a process called mandatory reporting where if somebody hears something, they have to report it, if they're mm-hmm. faculty, for example. So there's a whole kind of shadow language, right, that develops to avoid kind of triggering this process because often the, 
legal system or the administrative system doesn't actually work in the interest of survivors. Mm. And so I was interested in kind of how people talk to each other in non-official kind of ways. And so fuzzy, messy, icky, fuzzy is a way of thinking about things that are unclear, unclear boundaries, things you don't necessarily remember, the way that alcohol can affect your memory, Mm. which is a big thing in sexual violence. It's something we often don't talk about officially. Messy is a way of thinking about consequences but then also thinking about stories that don't really follow a kind of neat narrative pattern. You can think about something like, oh, she's such a hot mess is a kind of insult about a woman who's like out of control. And it also has this kind of affective baggage with it. And then icky. So this is one I've gotten some pushback on, but I think it's actually the most important one. Icky is like the way that the stories make you feel. So it's a way of talking about affect. It's not necessarily, things can be icky and be consensual. Things can be icky and be, there's a lot of kind of space around icky. For me, the real icky story is Lot and his daughters. Mm. Because you've got this story about, it really feels like a rape story. And it's really difficult in the text to determine whether Lot's the victim, his daughters are the victims, everyone's the victim. But like, everybody can agree that teaching that story to a bunch of first year students, like there's a real energy in the class. Like you feel the ickiness. Mm. And I like Icky, too, because it's sort of um, Sarah Ahmed, who's a feminist queer affect theorist, talks about sticky affect in the way that feelings will kind of spread between bodies or spread in a classroom. Yeah. And I think often stories of sexual violence are very sticky texts. And I like the way that Icky kind of suggests that, too. Mm. So I sort of I came up with a framework. Um, that first chapter was originally a talk I gave about rape in the, sex- in the Bible and it sort of spun out from there. And it, I think it works better and worse in different stories. But I wanted more than anything to just give us more ways of talking about sexual violence. Mm. So it's kind of a couple of times where, you know, obviously, like it, it, earlier in that introduction, you're kind of talking a bit about, you know, how you kind of kept getting drawn back to these stories, partly because of their prevalence within the text, but also because of their prevalence within the contemporary context, right? And on, you mentioned you're on campus. I'm sure you're writing this, you know, during and on the heels of, you know, the Me Too movement and, and, and mm-hmm. a, a, you know, and a, a host of other, you know, just everyday bombardment of stories and and um, terrible examples of, you know, justice not being upheld. And, you know, so, so you know, and, and as you've just been talking here, it's, you know, I'm trying to think about the way sexual violence and rape is talked about in that contemporary, um, in, the, in the colloquial, in the, in the, um, the places outside of just the scholarly. So I, I was just curious about that you know, as you're writing this book, that kind of interplay between, um, I'm very much talking about texts <laughs> that are, you know, well-established, well-researched, you know, engaged. And also there's this, you know, we always are writing for a contemporary thing, you know, whether we're doing history or theology, but like how much, you know, how you are trying to navigate that interplay between, I'm talking inside about, you know, feminist biblical scholarship. I'm talking about particular texts with a received tradition and also you know, this is just what I am also dealing with whenever I'm talking to students or living in this world um, and, and how that played a part, whether that was helpful in how you thought through it. It seems like it was with, in terms of developing that framework, but how that kind of shaped the process a little bit and, and I guess how that maybe shaped how you're thinking about biblical interpretation and, and studies more broadly. Yeah, in writing the book, I tried to be really intentional actually about bringing in a lot of contemporary material And in particular, a lot of contemporary material written by millennial authors, written by Gen Z authors, written by women, written by survivors of sexual violence. So intentionally, not just bringing literature to bear on the Bible, 
but also thinking about the kind of literature that's often dismissed as being like women's fiction mm. or being popular. And so I think this shows mm. up the most in the chapter where I talk about Sarah and Hagar. And I talk there about um, uh, millennial women's fiction and this kind of pattern in fiction. And this is just something I discovered in my own reading while mm. I was thinking about the Bible and it kind of came together in a lucky way. But there are all of these novels where they're all about tortured female friendship, often mm. with like kind of a side of sexual energy ranging from like full like girlfriend, ex-girlfriend relationship to just kind of like best friends, but with like a lot of baggage. But then there's mm. always often a rape in the story too, but the rape isn't the focus of the story. Mm. And so it's this kind of interesting pattern that's sort of thinking about, it's a different way of thinking about a story of sexual violence where it's not the most important thing in the story. And reading those novels helped me to kind of think about the story of the rape of Hagar in that way. Mm. But I wanted really purposely to kind of shift or bring other voices into biblical studies because I think we're still very, very classist, very much about the canon. Like you can bring in literature, but it's better if it's Shakespeare. Like maybe Tess of the Durbervilles would be like an acceptable kind of rape story. And I really wanted to push back on that. Yeah, I was gonna. I wanted to ask about the the, the use of literature, which comes through a lot, and particularly that contemporary literature. Um, it was that something like you know I haven't read um, your your first book, but is that something that you've you know often been interested in exploring, or is that kind of more developing you know through this project? Um, and I guess you kind of started to touch on it there, but you know I think like I think it's such an interesting you know it, I think it's such a great move to bring in. I mean personally, I love that, and I love trying to draw on that, and I think. You know, but it's interesting to hear you kind of talk a bit about that resistance of um, th these things aren't established enough to be able to speak, um, you know, constructively to this whole field. Um, yeah, how, how did you, you know, I guess you talked a bit about what that opened up for you, but I guess, yeah, that was that something that you, um, yeah, kind of, as you think, you know, have been thinking about wanting to do for a while or have been doing for a while or, um, and, and, yeah, and is it something that you're hoping that, you know, you'll be able to continue or do you think it was this project was specific and it, it really just, like, um, spoke to this particular moment, yeah? So I've always been a bit of a magpie, and so I've always been sort of <laughs> interested in collecting interesting stories and bringing them together. Mm. Um, my first book is about masculinity and the prophets and thinking about the prophetic body as a queer body. And there, um, each of the chapters, I talk about one prophet and then I bring in some kind of contemporary parallel. Mm. So it's a similar gesture. It's less focused on the literary. So I talk about um, Ezekiel and Daniel Paul Schraber, who was a German judge who had a mental breakdown. Um, Freud's case study about homosexuality is based on Schraber's memoir, but it's like this great book where Schraber is being um, sexually, sexually attractive to this radio wave God. And so I talk mm. about that text together with Ezekiel. I talk about, um, the exorcist together with Hosea. And so I do these kind of, um, it's a mix of like theory texts and some film texts, but it, it's not as consistently literary. I did find in that project, there's this great Anne Carson poem. It's called the book of Isaiah. Um, and I found that really helpful for thinking about Isaiah and thinking about the body of Isaiah. Um, but in this book, I thought more kind of through categories of literature, my one regret, I wish I had put more poetry in it. It's really hard to get poetry permissions. And so um, Patricia Lockwood has this great poem. Maybe you've read it. It's called Rape Joke. It, it went viral in 2013. Mm. It's this amazing poem that perfectly captures a lot of what I wanted to talk about, but it just was too much. They couldn't get it in the book in the end. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was a whole Twitter conversation happening recently where people were talking about the whole issue of trying to get any kind of poetry or song lyrics into their books and, and, and sad. Yeah. Yeah. For, for what gets missed and, and, you know, yeah, I guess it's another conversation, but yeah. And no, I thank you for that. Uh, so I guess another important 
you know, theme that runs through the book or an important category, I guess, is this idea of unhappy reading. So you kind of touched on earlier that, you know, the, the feminists are brought in to deal with the sad stories and to help us feel um, the right amount of sad for the right amount of reasons. Um, and and you're trying to kind of, I guess, push a little against the way some of that sad story stuff operates, both in the sense of either you're trying to, you know, the way it kind of leans to one of kind of cathartic uh, reading or the way it just kind of um, elongates or, or, or keeps going the suffering. So talk to us a bit about unhappy reading um, and, and how that um, develops and how that shapes some of the work that's going going on here. There are two kind of major sources for thinking about unhappy reading. The first is that in Texts of Terror, Phyllis Tribble says something like, the task of feminist criticism is to tell sad stories. And I got kind of obsessed with this phrase in thinking about it because I think telling sad stories, on the one hand, it sounds very humble, right? You're just telling a story. On the other hand, it suggests that there's a meaning that's fixed and the role of the critic is fixed and it's to tell that meaning that's already established, which is that the story is sad. Mm. And I got interested in thinking, what if we did something with criticism that wasn't telling and that wasn't assuming kind of a fixed object? The other kind of Touch point for me is Sarah Ahmed's work on unhappiness. She has this great book, The Promise of Happiness, and she talks about feminist and queer and migrant kind of perspectives as kind of alternatives to happiness and the way that happiness scripts can be used to enforce like very normative ideas. So you can think about when you tell your children, oh, I just want you to be happy. Like that seems like a sweet gesture, but it also can be a very coercive kind of move. And so she talks about, especially in her work about queer unhappiness, sort of like the political and even utopian possibility of unhappiness as a sort of position. And so I got interested in thinking about unhappy reading and also thinking there about unhappy as an adjective rather than a noun. And so it's kind of opening a space for kinds of reading. And so an unhappy reading, it might be a reading where the outcome is unhappy. You might feel unhappy that you don't feel unhappy enough about the reading. So we Mm. all experience this. If you teach the same text over and over, like there's a point where you can't feel sad every time. And you might be making, I mean, it might feel, you might feel sad that you felt, feel bored teaching a rape story, right? Because like, what does that say about you and about the world? (laughs) You might feel unhappy because there isn't a good kind of solution to the text. I talk about this with the story of the Levite's concubine, Mm. which I really, I I wanted to leave it out of the book. And I was like, I can't leave this out of the book. (laughs) Like this is clearly a very important story, but it's sort of also where, where things break down a little bit and there isn't necessarily like, I couldn't find a way to make that like a happy feminist story. And also I don't think that would have been a good thing to do, but so unhappy reading also is sort of like holding that space for not being happy where we're, where we're at, but allowing criticism to kind of keep doing its work. Donna Haraway talks about staying with the trouble as sort of what feminist criticism does. And I love that expression. And I think that's sort of part of what I'm trying to do with unhappy reading also is just name the trouble and then stay with it. Mm. Yes, because you talk about like you know this this idea of holding space uh, for it rather rather than shying away, which I think is 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 really helpful and and important. Um, yeah, thank you for that. So there's another um, aspect that I think you know is we come to chapter two of this um, edges of consent, um, and you know which which is I think a, a really important chapter where you develop that because you know I think. You know, as you know, that like you know, consent has kind of become the arbitra um, universal of is this a sex story or is this sex or rape? You know, that it, um, it, yeah, it's kind of fallen into that. And I think this chapter pushes a, you know, pushes us to think further 
and deeper about how we are actually, you know, classifying and 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 thinking through a lot of what is going on uh, there. And um, so, and, and you kind of talk about um, Dinah and Tamar and and Lot's daughters here, um, which is, I guess, also you continue to talk about the, the icky and fuzziness here. But yeah, I guess can you talk to us a bit about that? Because I think you know, because that is one of those things where. I'm sure intersecting with a lot of the conversation in the contemporary context where this has become, you know, so much the, you know, as I, as we, as I raised kids, you know, where you're you're thinking a lot about like, oh yes, consent, teach that early, you know, um, understand your body bubbles and all that is always on my mind. So then thinking about this uh, was was really interesting and and, and helpful. So can you talk to us a little about the um, edges of consent and, and I guess what you're trying to open up a bit there? Yeah, I mean, there's even that children's book. I don't know if you've seen it. C is for consent, right? So consent has become such a such a go-to solution to the problem of sexual violence. And okay. so I think that we, we see this everywhere in popular culture and popular feminism. There's a popular video that went around. Consent is like tea. You know, mm, if somebody mm. wants tea. If they don't want it, you can't force them to have it. So interestingly, at this moment when consent has become just like very common as a cultural notion, there also have been... There's a longstanding feminist and queer critique of consent. And I think that that critique also started to get sort of rise and become reinvigorated in critical space around the time that, especially like university administrators and other kind of um, political actors were pushing consent as a solution to sexual violence. Hmm. And I think part of it also, like if, if consent education worked the way it's supposed to work, then we wouldn't have, sec- it would have made more of a difference on campus. So to be very clear, I think consent is very important. I think it is the least, it's the best that we have for a lot of things, like for thinking about campus policies, but also consent is asked to do a lot of intellectual and ideological labor that it's just not able to do. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I think that it can end up gaslighting people in situations of sexual violence. And also, so one problem with consent is it's not strong enough. The other problem is it's just a very low bar. So I talk in this chapter about sort of some problems with consent. You know, it's colonialist. It's consent is something that one person gives to another. So it assumes power relations. Mm -hmm. It doesn't accommodate discomfort. There's a whole category of sexual encounters where women um, consent to avoid being raped. And there's work on this by Nicola Gavi, who's a psychologist. Like, what does that say about consent? But I also keep thinking about this line from Rebecca Traster, who's like a feminist journalist and she was interviewing college students and one of them says um god help us if the best we can say about our sex is that it's consensual and like that's also a really interesting point right we also want better than just Mm. consensual and so i was interested in thinking about this critique of consent and then bringing it to thinking about the bible Mm. especially because a lot of people were sort of well-intentioned but like oh we need to think about these rape stories well consent will tell us if it's a rape like let's just Mm. apply the fbi definition of rape or let's apply our campus sex policy to the rape of tamar and like that i don't think that that does the work we want it to do oh thank you for that 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 is really helpful um so another story that you you mentioned early on which one which has changed in its uh reading across let's say the last x amount of decades is david and bathsheba which you know has just been in the lectionary, so so it was fresh on my mind as I was I was reading through the book, and you know I I I, I preached on it, and you know you know car- you know telling the story and why that you know David is this 
Richard III-esque villain of, of, you know, he sent all the men away to war and he, um, you know, takes Bathsheba to his home and, you know, her, her husband's away. So it's, you know, it's this, it's this rape of her. And then he murders her husband because he can't get him to sleep with her in order to pass off the pregnancy. You know, it's, it's this, you know, epic kind of um, treacherous uh, story of David Um and I guess, you know, you even have this kind of idea of him, you know, kind of prowling above the city, looking down in, um, which all that kind of gets this idea of, of I guess, the way I am you know, have been thinking about it, of this predation. Um, and I guess that's exactly then when I read your, your, your great chapter here of, of pushing against, uh, or at least trying to open up and thinking, is that the best term and, and offering something else? So, like, I guess, you know, this must be an interesting one to kind of enter into because it's still like, you know, in a lot of places, which is still touchy if you want to, you know, begin to talk about David raping Bathsheba or David, you know, like, you know, that th- that that was David's, you know, one of David's crimes. Usually it's like, yes, he did bad to Uriah and he sinned against God. But this one, you know, um, so you're kind of entering into a, you know, a conversation that's still quite like maybe less universally characterized and classified as some of the others, um, but also trying to kind of go, let's, why we're still in this midstream, let's um, actually think about it in a slightly different way. So can you talk to us a little bit about, um, yeah, that, that kind of push against predation and, and, and how you're thinking about the David and Bathsheba story? Yeah, so this story, I've had the same experience also with teaching it, right? This is this one is touchy and also students read it very differently depending on their background, especially mm-hmm. sort of like how much they know about David. Nobody's really shiding with Shechem in my classes. Nobody really relates strongly to Lot, and so that story is less sort of... Mm-hmm. Yeah, this one is is more of a touchy story. And so I think the obvious feminist reading, right, is to think about Bathsheba as a victim. But I also Mm -hmm. was very interested in this argument against position, like against the victim position, which was coming up a lot in um, writing by survivors who are writing about kind of the way they get put into a survivor box or asked to tell their story in a certain way. And Mm -hmm. then also in queer um, critiques of the way that consent is used. So this chapter, I use the work of Joseph Fischel a lot, who is a feminist scholar who has a great couple of great books about consent, sex and harm in the age of consent, and then screw consent. And he talks about how predation is not the most useful model, especially in thinking about the harm that sexual violence does. And he has a larger kind of project thinking about the way that things like um, sex offender laws can actually be very cannot help the people they're supposed to help and can be very harmful and can do kind of harm in the name of protecting um, the survivor or the child or something like that. There's interested in using this story to think about how we could think about what David does being wrong besides sort of through a metaphor of David being a predator. And I mm. was interested, like how much David as a predator actually does get tossed around in the literature. I mean, it kind of makes sense because already Nathan does that in his parable, right? He compares Bathsheba right. to a lamb and you have this common kind of representing of victims as young, as as the very young girl, as the innocent mm. lamb, the kind of association of the animal and the child and the woman, which mm. can generate empathy, but also, again, is a way of sort of um, disempowering that figure. And so I like this argument about preemption, which is about limiting future possibility mm. rather than predation. And I like it because it lets us still think about harm being done in the story, but it doesn't just make Bathsheba into a kind of like passive active upon agent. Mm. And it also holds a kind of space for her, the harm that she does at the end of the story to Abishag the Shulamite. Uh, mm. Shunamite. And so it doesn't just make kind of like, we want to have like good guys and bad guys, right? <laughs> we have innocent victims and guilty perpetrators. At the same time, we know a lot of perpetrators are themselves victims. And so I want to kind of hold 
make a possibility for thinking about harm kind of more broadly and less kind of just like a less of a knee jerk predator, like the predator model, I don't think does everything we want it to do. Mm. I think that's, that's, that's really helpful. Cause I was thinking about like toward the end of that story when I was you know reflecting on it uh, f- f- for preaching was, you know, that, you know, with Uriah dead, like it has the line of now like um, Bathsheba goes, or David takes Bathsheba into his home. And, and you're kind of at this point of like, you know, of that foreclosing of possibilities. Like, yeah, well, what, what Bathsheba has really one hope at this point is that the man who abused her takes her in kind of thing. Um, and then, as you say, it sets the stage for then, you know, her story becoming, you know, really quite complex and in, 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 and intriguing and, and, and filled with the, the broad, um, part of the broader political drama of Samuel. But, like, I guess what you've, you know, opened up is, so all that now is open that there are other things that can happen in her story, but we also see that there were potentials closed off which led into this, which meant that, yes, she now maybe, you know, is doing other things, but it's also we've seen that there could have been a whole other life for her had this not been... Um, earlier on um, aspects of it foreclosed, which I think. Yeah, exactly. It's like this closing of possibility, which is another way of thinking about harm. And it still lets you take the harm really seriously, but without just having her be a victim. Mm. So it was interesting when you you said kind of at the the start of that, you're talking about the, the, you know, being influenced and reading through like, you know, accounts of survivors and people talking, talking back. And I guess you use that language talking back when you come to the daughter of Zion. Um, And again, this idea of, someone um you know speaking um of their suffering but kind of refusing this uh you know you know sympathetic narrative that that often just reinstates trauma so as you say like you know we have this thing of like oh yes innocent victim who's now you know you talked about or forever now decimated or you know rape equals death you know this kind of thing and um her role of speaking back into that um as, as kind of, you know, pushing against some of that kind of what we think often is, yes, sy- sympathetic, but actually can, you know, again, is it, can sometimes maybe this be its own closing of possibilities and its own reinscribing of particular narratives and, 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 and harm. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm curious a bit about that. Because it comes up a bit, a bit about that and another place that against that kind of simplified victimizing, um, victim language and, and categories. Um, so, yeah, so kind of that's moving a bit into the kind of the after here of, mm-hmm. of speaking back of, of challenging the, these kind of, you know, well, once done always now in a particular category and way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm interested. I've been very interested in the way that survivors are compelled to speak. Mm. And so this is something you can think about in the kind of genre of the take back the night rally where the survivor gets up and tells her story and you know the kind of beats that she's going to hit in the story and you know the kind of way the story is going to be figured there's the way that the legal system compels survivors to speak but only allows certain kinds of stories about trauma to be told so for example if your story is that you're drunk and you don't remember what happens like that's not the kind of story that's allowed to be heard in a certain kind of way so there's this kind of and a lot of people talk about being re-traumatized by the process of seeking redress for sexual violence mm. they've experienced. This is something I talk about, especially in thinking about Daughter Zion in Lamentations, because this is one of the few places in the text where you have a character that's described as surviving sexual violence who then is speaking back. So Tamar, right, she laments and then she kind of disappears. Bathsheba doesn't talk about what happened or her words aren't preserved. But you have this with Daughter Zion, this unique opportunity but then I also think that, and there's a kind of famous feminist argument that she speaks back to the prophets and she kind of names the justice against the injustice that's 
um, inflicted against her. What's interesting, if you look at what she actually says, she doesn't actually follow the script that we would like her to say. And I thought this Mm. was, the more you kind of look at her speeches, it's really interesting the way that she doesn't sort of perform the ideal survivor role. There's like, she, she doesn't specifically name what happens to her. She doesn't seem to be, she's like both obsessed with being a mother and isn't a very good mother. There are all these kind of ways that her speech slips from what we would like it to be. But there's also this way then that scholarship tries to narrate her into this position of like mm. the woman who has suffered the most and is the ideal survivor. But she's kind of like wriggling out of that position, even as this is being put on her by scholarship. Mm. And so I'm interested in sort of that, the way that the speech that she gives resists that kind of the the narrative that's being pushed onto her. Um, and this is something that you brought up the the way that survivors talk about their own experiences. And this is also... It's, it's not identical, but it resonates with certain, um, especially memoirs from people who are um, otherwise outside of the most normative script of sexual violence. So, mm-hmm. for example, queer survivors of sexual violence. Um, one of the sort of least, there are certain, one of the things that you're not supposed to say as a survivor also is this thing happened and it was bad, but I'm over it. Or it wasn't a big deal or that right. it happened this sort of like, there's this sense that we want it to be the worst thing that ever happened to you so that we can all remember that to help other people avoid it. And so this kind mm-hmm. of not that bad is another kind of forbidden narrative you can tell. Mm-hmm. But I'm sort of interested in all that and then thinking about how we talk about biblical survivor stories. Yeah, that's really helpful. I was thinking then about also about like, you know, the the emergence of this genre of like, you know, kind of a true crime podcast and particularly, you know, often, which often center on, on, on violence against women. And, and, you know, this, you know, lots has been kind of been starting to get written about what function it is playing in, mm-hmm. in, in shaping these narratives and shaping how we should be, how women should be responding to or avoiding or things like that. And, um, and yeah. And again, like, you know, you kind of talk about after is trying to push against a particular kind of reading, which either tries to fix it, um, or, or tries to go. Here's the, the the proper cathartic response that we get to if we can't fix it, um, and say well, we, it can be. I think what was really fascinating about the book is just that it can be a lot bigger and more mm-hmm. complex than that. You know how we how we read these stories, what's going on. You know, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, the Sarah and Hagar story, and like you know, just this this really you know, complex dynamic between the two women. You know what happens as you say in speaking afterwards when you don't you know, hit the beats that people want you to hit. Um, yeah, I, I think that's one of the real um, virtues of the book. One thing I really I appreciate so much in the book is, is that it's it's the after is, is so much bigger and more complex and, you know, but still painful, right, and still mm-hmm. impossible. Um, is it? Yeah, is the it, true crime on. is a great parallel. Mm. Right. And, and in the true crime also often the woman is dead, like dead women are good for narratives because they right. you can then dictate to your audience how to feel. There's mm. an author, Alice Boleyn, who has this great book called dead girls about the work. And she talks about the, the work that dead girls do on television. You can think about twin peaks and like Laura Palmer's mm. face. Mm. And I think that that is true in a lot of genres, right? If you have a dead girl, she can be beautiful and she can be tragic and we can have certain feelings, but you know, often in the Bible, she's actually alive after that point. And I think that is important to hold on to Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. That's, yes, that's a great point. Um, so I, I, I'm curious about, like, you know, like thinking about that, like, you know, this resisting maybe the slightly more simplified or neater thing. Like, 
surely is also the harder <laughs> path to do. And, and, and I'm thinking about either in either your teaching or in engagement with students or even in the writing of this book, like if there are practices or, or things you've developed to help test yourself in a sense or, 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 or to ask the question of students. Because um, as you say, like often it's built from a kind of an empathy or it's built from a, we're trying to solve the problem. <laughs> like, and, and we think this is the most expedient route. Um, you know, that... Um, yeah, to try to, to test, you know, kind of falling back or folding in on a particular kind of way of reading that that does its own kind of limiting um, yeah, ways you've thought about kind of trying to resist that. I think in teaching more than anything, just going slowly is what helps me a lot. Mm -hmm. And so in teaching Bible classes, I don't try to cover a lot of text at once. And so these are difficult stories, but also mm. I'm interested more than anything is showing students that there are multiple ways to read a story. And so not mm -hmm. showing them that there's one correct reading, but sort of proliferating readings. And so I try in the class, usually I'll assign a text and then we'll have a couple secondary readings about it, but then also to just kind of chart out different ways to read around the story. I try also both in the class and in my writing to make my political and ideological commitments really clear, right? That this critique of feminist scholarship is coming from in the tradition of feminist scholarship and in the tradition of queer scholarship. And it's important to me that I'm, that I'm continuing that conversation. Like what I love about feminist and queer theory, both is the kind of theoretical richness of both mm -hmm. of those academic fields and approaches to text. And so in, I very much see this in that kind of tradition. I think it's also really helpful just to have other feminist and queer colleagues who I can bounce ideas mm -hmm. off of, you know, try things out. Is this too far? Is this not far enough? <laughs> but I think that really that work of critique is fundamentally a feminist and queer gesture. And that's something I want to really insist on. Mm, yeah. Thank you. So, so as we kind of start to begin to land the plane um, and, and fasten our seatbelts and put away our carriage tables, um, if you, if you had like, you know, a, a, an articulated hope for this book, as it's, you know, now a few months out and it's going to continue to, to go out and be read. And hopefully a bunch of folks from hearing this interview are going to pick it up or call their librarian. Um, cause, cause all our listeners have their librarian on, on in their, in their contacts, um, and, and get it into their local theological library, um, or university library of any kind. Um, what, what, yeah, did you, you know, what hopes do you have for it as it continues to kind of meet readers along the way? Great question. So I hope that students will read it. Mm -hmm. I hope that people will read it outside of a kind of narrow, uh, not narrow, but people both in and outside of feminist biblical criticism will read it because mm -hmm. I'm actually interested in thinking about these stories and thinking about the way the field works more broadly. But I'm also really just sort of, my hope is that people will think about this kind of like what else question, like what else can we do with stories? How can we sort of keep asking questions and maybe just not, I think people get turned off by feminist criticism because it's just so sad and so depressing, or you just get tired of reading these same sort of sad, depressing stories. And I want to, my real hope is that people will find a space for playful critique or for even critique as being something, there should be pleasure in critique along with this sort of feeling mm. sad. I mean, in, at this moment, like, we all need a little bit of playfulness and I don't, I don't want feminist criticism not to have that in it. I want us to be able to play and play can be very serious, but I'm interested yes. in that kind of multiplying interpretations. Mm. Well, thank you for that. So folks, the book is text after terror out with Oxford university press. I mean, we've, not even scratch the surface, a carpet burn on the surface of this book. Um, and it, it's, it's so rich and, you know, it, 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 we kind of touched on a number of the stories that are addressed within, 
the different chapters, but there's more and there's and there's richness and space and play um, in there. So so please do check out the book uh, and check out Are We Not Men as well. Anything else, Ariana, that you want to promote or draw people's attention to in this moment? I think so, but thank you so much for having me on. This is fantastic. No, you're you're welcome. It was it's it's great to talk, and I uh, yeah really appreciate the book. So thank you for your work on it, and uh, and folks, we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you next week. Bye.